1: What we are trying to do here at the level of the Basque Country is you know, you have to make teachers aware of how important creative feedback is. I mean, normally, and again, I always say this, you know, in teacher workshops and everything, I never blame teachers because at least in Spain, they're up to here with administrative work. They don't have time to read research articles or to interpret research articles. So it's our job as researchers to, you know, organize uh, workshops and uh, and organize a uh, you know, forum in which fora in which we can share our findings leaving aside all the jargon and just conveying the main ideas of what we do.
2: Teacher training
1: Mm -hmm.
2: about corrective feedback. Mm -hmm. What does that look like for you?
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. To those of you who are new listening to this podcast for the first time, The main aim of our podcast is to really deconstruct language teaching, to bridge the gap between research and personal practice. Each episode is dedicated to our vision of education, continuous growth that is accessible, affordable, and appropriate to your context. Andrew, we also have a membership, don't we?
0: We absolutely do. Our Learn Your English Teacher Development Membership, where you can join a community of curious teachers and educators who want to achieve more. Without having to plan and teach more. Leo, you like to say, teach more mindfully, right?
3: That's right. And that's what we try to do with our membership. We try to provide content, mentoring, courses, and more importantly, a community, a community of practice to help teachers plan less so they can actually have time to develop more. And what we focus on, Andrew, mindful and meaningful teaching, better thinking, continuous learning developing a healthy mind, purposeful creativity, mental tools for thought, and humanistic education. Andrew, if somebody wants to become a member, what do they have to do?
0: Oh, so simple. Just go to courses.learnyourenglish.net and become a member right there. You'll have access to all of our materials, not only for this month, but for all the months that you missed in the past. If you want more information, check out learnyourenglish.net slash memberships. We are thrilled to announce our partnership with Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada for this podcast series on corrective feedback. A big thank you to Dr. Eva Karchava and her MA class, to produce this interview series, which we know will be a fantastic analysis of corrective feedback and its role in language learning and teaching.
3: This series has eight episodes focusing on aspects of corrective feedback. Corrective feedback is a crucial area of second language acquisition, and there has been a lot of research done recently to shed light on the role it plays in student learning. Seven of the interviews in this series were conducted by students in Dr. Karchava's MA class as means of assessment to do two primary things. Number one, to connect researchers to their audience. And number two, to have her students have a greater level of understanding and investment in the research they were reading.
0: That's right, Leo. And we're excited to provide an outlet for this project and to give not only new voices an opportunity to be heard, but to allow for new podcasting experiences for many. If you or your institution is interested in producing a mini series, either as a means of assessment or otherwise, please reach out to us at infolearnyourenglish.com. At this is episode five in our corrective feedback series, featuring Dr. Maria del Pilar Garcia Mayo. Dr. Garcia Mayo is the director of research group Language in Speech a multidisciplinary group at the University of the Basque Country in Spain. The group focuses on the acquisition of English as a foreign language. Dr. Garcia Mayo has a PhD in linguistics from the University of Iowa and is the director of the MA program Language Acquisition in Multilingual Settings, as well as the head of the Department of English and German Studies at the University of the Basque Country. Her publications span the area of second and third language acquisition of English, Morphosyntax, and the Study of Conversational Interaction in EFL. She is also the co-editor of journal Language Teaching Research. Conducting the interview today is Jean Chalbois and Sarah Langridge. With that said, let's get on with the show.
4: Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dr. Garcia Mayo. Uh, We are going to start off with asking you a question about a study that you did with Dr. Mia in 2014 in reference to corrective feedback. So in your study with Dr. Mia in 2014, your results showed that in an English foreign language context, the teacher was using the whole spectrum of corrective feedback types, favoring explicit feedback, And this was shown to be 82% effective as compared to content and language integrated learning environments or the learning class, where the teacher favored recast more and had an uptake rate of 52%. So we were wondering, why do you think that corrective feedback in English foreign language contexts has been shown to be more effective than corrective feedback in the CLIL context?
1: Okay, well, um, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for inviting me to to have this uh, informal conversation. And I will kind of give a long answer to this question because I really want to contextualize it, okay? So um, I'd like to to clarify that this question relates to, as you have said, to a study that I co-authored with my then PhD student, Dr. Ruth Milla. And it was about a comparison between oral corrective field feedback in FL versus CLIL context. Uh, one of the reasons uh, for that study to be carried out was uh, found in a meta-analysis that uh, Alison Mackey and uh, Gu, one of her students, uh, carried out back in 2007, right, in which they reported a positive relationship between context and the effect of corrective feedback with significant larger effects in foreign language settings versus second language settings. Also um, in Lister and Morris 2006 call for more qualitative type of research uh, to understand potent, potential contextual differences well First of all, we have to be clear about what oral corrective feedback is. And probably, as you know, it's kind of a reactive type of uh, for focus instruction, which is considered to be effective in promoting noticing. And therefore, it has been claimed to uh, foster uh, le- language learning. In general, previous studies have reported that recasts were the most frequent type of corrective feedback, but there were differences between foreign language and and second language context. In foreign language settings, uh, teachers used more explicit types of feedback and and prompts, right? Mm -hmm. And um, teachers in second language settings uh, had lessons focused on meaning and offered more implicit types of correction. It is on the basis of these differences that Lister and Mori propose uh, their counterbalance hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, that hypothesis says that for corrective feedback to be effective, it should differ from the main orientation of the lesson. So, if you are in a form oriented foreign language setting, then recast should be used as they would be more right. salient, right? Uh, whereas in second language settings, well, more oriented to meaning, prompts would be more effective. Now, in our study, what we compared was a pure quote unquote. EFL context in Spain, which is uh, three, four hours per week of English, right? Mm-hmm. With a CLIL, Content and Language Integrated Learning Context, within the same school. That was very important, okay? So, CLIL, I, I don't know if you are um, following me. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um Clearly, is a very popular methodological approach in most countries in Europe. And um, it can be interpreted as an educational approach where what you do is you teach curriculum content through the medium of a foreign language. I mean, it has been right. thought of so that you can make up for I mean, actually not make up to offer students more exposure to the language without extending their, their busy schedules. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, these students in our study, they had they were high school students. They had four hours and f- four, sorry, four lessons for 15 minute lessons of business English. OK, that was the, the clear part. It was Mm -hmm. business English. So, in your study, corrective feedback was more effective in the EFL context in terms of immediate. Uh, uh, uptake. Now, I should clarify, both CLIL and EFL are foreign language contexts, okay? But mm-hmm. when we talk about pure EFL, it's just classes uh, in English, on English, right? And when we talk mm-hmm. about CLIL, we are talking about, in this case, business English, besides their current, uh, their, their English classes. So, it was more effective as far as immediate uptake, which... Again, we have to remember that it has been claimed to be indicative of some kind of uh, awareness that could lead to some interlanguage restructuring, right? But why? Well, because the EFL teacher used a wide variety of corrective feedback types, right? What Lister and Ranta, already back in 1997, called multiple feedback, right, to address Uh, most corrective feedback episodes. Now, this type of combined correction seems to be much, much richer than the uh, recasts and elicitation types that the CLIL teacher used, okay? This, of course, was uh, an easy explanation, which, uh, I mean, has an easy explanation. I mean, that's what we think, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because uh, the CLIL teacher uses corrective feedback types that try not to interrupt right? The flow of conversation that the learners have in that business class, right? Um, whereas the EFL teacher does not mind stopping the conversation and devoting time, time to the provision of corrective feedback. In fact, in a foreign language class, in a pure foreign language class, teachers here, at least in our context, are expected to do that and students expect to be corrected, right? Whereas in the business class, uh, the teacher is probably more interested or was probably more interested in, in allowing the you know the students to to say at least something. Huh? I will talk about that a little bit more later on, and not to interrupt them. So that's probably uh, what the difference is, right?
4: So do you do you think that the curriculums allow more room for the instructor to provide that kind of feedback? or to make room to provide a variety of the feedback rather than sticking more to the curriculum or sticking to the script,
1: so to speak? Uh, well, this this would lead us to a, to a different topic. But the thing is that the type of training, yeah, that's why I want to talk about that later on, uh, if possible. But that's the type of training that uh, people here in Spain have when they are asked by their schools, you know, to teach, I don't know, mm. business English or to teach history or to teach biology, right? Most of the most of these teachers are specialists, especially in high school here, which our, our data come from a high school. And uh, they're specialists in their topic.
4: We will follow <laughs> up on the teacher training later on. You're right. We do have more questions regarding that. But to go back to the idea of using different types of feedback in the EFL or the CLIL context. Do you think that certain contexts allow or are more allowing for the learners to notice certain things and ultimately change their behavior or change their language later on? Is it
1: more context dependent as well for the learner? Okay, so what would we... What we did in that study that you mentioned in the in the mm-hmm. first question, right? That was that was a pilot study. In fact, it was from uh, Dr. Media's uh, MA thesis, right? Uh, and so there we reported a uh, few, significant differences i mean quantitative differences right when we say significant we're talking about statistically significant mm-hmm. differences right between the two contexts but that was probably due to the small database we had right however uh interesting qualitative differences were observed already with this small database uh now in media 2017 which is uh dr media's phd dissertation which i supervised Um, part of the study uh, actually has been recently published in just this year it has been out in a chapter and so in that dissertation the database was enlarged and we also analyzed again EFL versus CLIL teachers and we also analyzed another pair of EFL EFL, CLIL teachers to discard you know the possibility of uh, you know teacher's idiosyncrasies that might have affected, you know, the results in the previous study. Now, one of the main findings that we reported in this new study is that the differences in lesson orientation, CLIL Mm -hmm. and EFL, uh, well, and that influenced uh, the teacher's amount, not just the amount, Mm -hmm. but also the types of oral corrective feedback provided, and also the learner's behavior. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we found that uh, corrective feedback episodes in the CLIL and EFL settings, uh, they were different in number and in Mm -hmm. nature. Right. In this study also we we found that as predicted, CLIL classrooms in secondary education are oriented to meaning. And not to form. Again, I repeat, mm-hmm. we I'm talking about the Spanish content context, right? Yeah. And about your specific question about whether certain contexts affect what will be noticed or learned and mm-hmm. ultimately changed by the learner. Obviously, I can only refer to what we found in, in our study, right? And what we found was this time significant differences between the corrective practices uh, implemented by the two teachers, not only with respect to the proportion of errors corrected, the EFL teacher corrected basically 80% of the errors and the CLIL teacher only 20%. But also in relation to the types of corrective feedback used, right? So the EFL teacher was most, mostly focused on explicit types and the CLIL teacher on recast, even though uh, both of them used recasts, but the recasts were different, right, because the, the, the CLIL teacher used more implicit conversational types of recasts where the EFL teacher used more didactic and explicit types of recast. Uh, Another interesting difference was that the CLIL learners, the CLIL student used their L1, their first language, much more than the EFL learners, right? We thought that was interesting. But again, the explanation for that is kind of easy because if, if CLIL learners miss something is specific lexical items to express mm-hmm. their ideas, right? So that's why they 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 just fell back on their L1. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I always say that in order to make claims about anything that we do and about about whether, you know, something might be changed in the learners into language, we all, always need longitudinal studies, right? Absolutely, that helps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Later on, <laughs> but it's—I don't know about other contexts, but uh, here uh, it's very, very difficult to access schools because right. these days you have to obtain permissions from, uh, especially if you work with minors, right? Nowadays, mm-hmm. that we are working with children. I mean, you need the parents and or legal caretakers' permission, the school's yeah. permission, the ethic committees. I mean, the university ethic committee ethics committee permission so when you get to the classroom I mean you have like one year of work before you, know, you actually get into the classroom so it's very difficult and of course you know to convince teachers that well we actually need longitudinal studies yeah. uh, that really interrupts their, their their classroom you know dynamics and mm-hmm. uh, that's hard right but I'll talk about that later <laughs> as well
4: So you just mentioned about explicit and implicit feedback again, Mm -hmm. and I just want to come back to that and ask about if explicit feedback, in your experience anyway, has led to greater noticing for uptake for a learner.
1: Okay. I think that, uh, yeah, that's a kind of very, very interesting question. Um, I think that I have to constrain my answer again to the foreign language setting, Yeah, and based uh, on the data we have collected throughout Mm -hmm. the years, um, I would say that, uh, you know, learners need to notice in order for uptake to take place, right, to occur. Uh, We need to consider and not to forget that in foreign language settings, learners at all levels have very little contact with the language at school. Mm -hmm. So teachers should provide them with uh, the best learning opportunities in the time they have allotted for their subjects, be those EFL or the teaching of subjects through the foreign language in clear context, right? Right. Now, I was, um, you know, thinking about uh, this issue and... um, I uh, remember a paper that was—it's uh, kind of old because things are all very quickly these days—and <laughs> this was in 2004, and it was in an ESL setting, actually in Canada. Um, and uh, this author Heft—this was an old study, I mean not old—2004, right? And actually, this person had three groups, right? And had a metalinguistic group, metalinguistic plus highlighting, and repetition plus highlighting, right? And The findings uh, indicated that feedback that provides an explanation of the error and also highlights the error in the student Mm -hmm. input. That is to say, metalinguistic explanation plus highlighting is the most uh, effective at eliciting learner uptake, right? There is another study, which is a bit more recent, 2011, and again, also uh, in an ESL setting, which is very different (laughs) from an EFL setting. And uh, here it was found that it was only recasts with rising intonation that were the most Mm. effective for learners noticing um Mm. now um um, Professor Karchava, actually, uh, you probably know that uh, she and uh, Professor Hussein uh, Nasaji have just published a handbook, mm-hmm. right, um, on corrective feedback, which is going to be kind of the bible for some years now because it's just a great handbook. And um, she noted that uh, research has repeatedly shown that uh, explicit corrective feedback strategies, uh, whose corrective intent is overt, right, mm-hmm. and not only are preferred by learners. Um, but also bring about opportunities for increased uh, feedback noticing right now for me another very important question is how you measure noticing right. Because there are intervening variables, I mean just just such as learner proficiency and especially in our case we are sometimes very interested in specific target features right mm. uh, and so that makes a difference, right? And uh, one aspect that I think is very interesting uh, to notice, because um, I, I do so much research on interaction, you know, that there is, a, there, is there is very interesting research by Ana Fernandez-Zobao, right? Who is at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, She works with um, Spanish as a foreign language, right? And, um, What she has reported is that um, silent in in interaction, when you have like small groups of three, for example, silent learners sometimes just who seem to be observing, right, and you would say as a teacher, you know, or as a researcher, you think, well, you know, he or she is not getting anything. Well, those Mm -hmm. learners um, actually, you know, um, they were not contributors, so to speak, right, to the interaction. they were shown to be actually consolidating their knowledge as well. So when talking, when you bring this idea to the corrective feedback field, huh, sometimes, you know, and this has to do, of course, with the measuring of uptake, mm-hmm. sometimes uh, you, if you just uh, restrict yourself to the actual measurements, well, sometimes uh, you'll get not the whole picture because uh, uh People who apparently are not uptaking, so to speak, mm. they might be restructuring their interlanguage as well, right? Even mm. even though they do not show it immediately, right? So Yes,
4: absolutely. This actually this leads me to um, something that was written in the handbook that Dr. Karcheva and mm. Nasaji are publishing in 2021, mm. and from your paper there, you have a comment that corrective feedback types that provide learners with the opportunity to self-repair appear to be more effective. Um, So with Alcon Soler, in 2008, you found that an an increased effect in terms of learner uptake, particularly when learners initiated the corrective feedback episode. So could you expand on that a little bit more as well and how to get a learner to initiate
1: a corrective feedback episode? How do you do that? Which paper was that? Is that in the 2021 chapter? It is. Yes,
4: this is in the corrective feedback oh, because in I a have versus um, foreign language context paper.
1: As far as initiating, I mean, you're talking about mm. a real classroom? Yeah. How do you get
4: learners to initiate a corrective feedback episode?
1: To initiate it? That's mm-hmm. when they, well, if they want to, they sometimes correct, uh, well, they self-correct or they can correct uh, a partner, right? Right. So that's, the, that, that's when they initiate it. But, could it also I mean, the be thing, asking clarification? Thing, thing, what was
4: that? Sorry, could it also be asking clarification from the instructor? Of course. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. We have we have seen that in, in children a lot, okay? We have several papers on that. With the children, when you're saying, you know, well, you know, they're very young, they don't have enough uh, lexical repertoire, uh, lexical mm-hmm. items or something, they do it. I mean, they use clarification requests, they use uh, comprehension checks, they use all kinds kind of
3: I have a question yeah. about that, uh, Pilar. So does all of this fall under the umbrella of negotiation of meaning? Negotiation of
1: meaning, yes. Yes. Yeah. And they do that both in pure foreign language context and in clear context as well. Right. But again, what we have found is that there's an age issue there. Even though you're dealing with very young learners, mm-hmm. it's not the same 8 to 9, 9 to 10, mm-hmm. than when they are 11, 12 yeah, the last year of, of uh, primary school in Spain is uh, 11, 12, right? So those are m- much more shy, right, than uh, than the little ones. The little, one, little mm. ones are much more adventurous, so to speak.
3: I want to add one more question because you were talking about noticing and I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but just to interrupt here the flow, but are there any sort of mechanisms whereby the user's attention can be directed to features of the input or mechanisms that the le- the speaker or the-, the learner can use to make noticing more salient.
1: Well, now you'll have to contextualize that. Is this like in a normal classroom development? In a regular or classroom. In, regular in a regular classroom? classroom, yeah. And you're talking about oral corrective feedback, I guess, right? Yeah. Not written, right? Not written, yes. oh, Okay. I guess as a teacher, the best way I have to, well, first thing, you have to assume that you're teaching the class totally in English, okay? Which I'll have my doubts about. I mean, I've observed many classes here, very foreign language classes, and I think that's the major problem, okay, in most uh, primary and high school class in Spain. Teachers, uh, especially, well, here, you know, you have two other languages, teachers can fall back on. I mean, that's mm-hmm. Basque and Spanish. So when they see that students are kind of a bit at a loss, oh, okay, we'll use it. Okay. We have studies on that too. The L1 is fine. I mean, it's not, we don't want to just say don't use the L1 because the L1 actually is a scaffolding, you know, tool, right? Um, And it helps the flowing of the conversation, but you cannot overuse it. Right. And uh, so as a teacher, what can I do? Right. For me, the best, one of the best techniques is uh, changing in the intonation, right? That's, me one of the major tools or weapons as it were that the teacher has right (laughs) to to call the learner's attention i mean again that's why i like to contextualize because it's not the same to be teaching primary school students than high school students you know Mm. high school students come on you know um you really have to have a lot of energy i really Mm. admire high school teachers right Mm. because uh their attention span could be, what, two minutes, uh, five minutes, right? And then they go, you know, they, they just um, do other things, right? So you really have to call their attention and combine, again, i go back to this idea that i mentioned at the beginning multiple feedback tools mm-hmm. so if i uh, you know i i write i use rising intonation i can also use the blackboard at the same time and write what i'm saying so you know this type of thing some people are more visual so even if you use rising intonation they won't get it or they might i mean there's there's lots of research on on recasts and the teacher is recasting something i don't know let's say use of articles in english right mm-hmm. and the learning might be understanding that, oh, okay, I've used the wrong word, right? Or something like that, instead of getting the, the, the article, right? So there are lots of studies with lots of results depending, again, on so many variables. So right? it's very difficult to overgeneralize right? or to generalize because you will be overgeneralizing.
0: Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hey guys, I'm Sophia Shanahan from Venezuela, living in Canada, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast.
2: Um, so, in in our handbook on corrective feedback, uh, uh, in in your chapter, you've identified this research gap. Um, kind of going back to children, there's a there's a research gap mm-hmm. in in sort of corrective feedback provision and uptake yeah. for children.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, you know, I imagine with, like, in a foreign language context where there's more and more sort of early start programs,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, do you see more sort of the research kind of geared towards, you know, children, classroom research?
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, I totally do, because... Um, no if i if i can share kind of a little bit of my story here when i arrived in the Basque country back in 1993 i was a theoretical linguist right my my dissertation was on uh was on parasitic gaps you know what those are <laughs> i had people from biology taking i mean attending my my talks and all that well anyway i i want to explain you can look that up you know what a parasitic gap is but anyway it was just theoretical syntax okay so i started teaching phd courses here and i realized Again, contextualized, back 993, not many people here had enough background on, on Chomskin syntax, right? It's not the same these days because we have trained <laughs> lots of people mm. since then. Uh, but the um, thing is that at one point, you know, I went to the library, those times with the car catalog, right? No. Uh, and uh, I found a paper by Professor Teresa Pica, right? Pica, mm. I'll never forget it. Pica, 1996, right? And it was about interaction, interaction among adult foreign language learners, second language learners, sorry. And I thought, wow, this is this is very interesting. In all my studies on theoretical linguistics or anything like, I've never heard about this. And of course, my love is teaching. You know, I love teaching. So I thought, oh, this is very interesting. So I started by myself. I said I started that line of research in the foreign language context with the help of Professor Pika, who's late, late Professor Pika. She collaborated with me, you know, from the very beginning. She came and visited and um visited us back in 1998 right so it was just a great way to learn from her um so you know i did Lots of research with my PhD students with adult learners, right? At the same time, I kept my other theoretical syntax line, right, which is very active too. But at one point, I thought, you know, what's the point? Okay, what's the point? I mean, you have to start the building from the basis, not, not from the roof, right? So, why don't we? So, at that point, right, I uh, applied for a grant from the Spanish Ministry of uh, Economy and Competitiveness, which is kind of the, the funding agency that we researchers have in Spain. So, because you see, I mean, like the last, uh, I think the last uh, Euridice report, I think was published in 2017 or so. But anyway, probably by now, 90% of the young population in Europe, right, is taken. English as a foreign language, of course, except for the UK and other places, right? But it's English as a foreign language. It's overwhelmingly English, right? And so you wonder, you know, what are people doing, you know, about young learners and interaction and and how do they use the language in the classroom? So I uh, applied for that grant. I got a four-year project, 2012, 2016. The title was Oral Interaction Among Jan EFL learners, negotiation of meaning and feedback strategies in communicative tasks and their impact on learning, right? That was the title, a very long one. And so my team and I have uh, collected a large database of children ages 6 to 12. That's the primary school, you know, primary education in Spain. We have published uh, widely on how, in our input limited foreign language context, right, children are able to negotiate. For meaning, they use lots of uh, interactional feedback strategies. Um, I don't know, I guess you know that the, the, the pioneering studies with children, but in ESL context, single second language context, were carried out by Dr. Um, uh, Rhonda Oliver in Australia. Okay, so actually, if you think of, of, a, of, a, of a square, you know, and the four parts of the square. ESL and EFL with adults and interaction was covered. ESL with children was covered, but the, this gap, this niche of EFL for children, was not covered at all. There was study here and there, but no real experimental studies. So we have we have worked a lot with that, and we were uh, we were very happily surprised uh, to find what we found, and we and also to share those findings with teachers. Because uh, to our surprise, teachers did not seem to trust their students, you know. And from the very beginning, they said, "Well, let's see what you find, blah blah blah." And uh, and you know, we we kind of were very happy to share the results with them in informal uh, workshop with uh, teachers, and to share. Also, the type of tasks that we used, the types of tasks that we used were based on the syllabi or the syllabus, they, The 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 teachers, you know, we had meetings with teachers, and so imagine I'm thinking now of a study we published. I think it was in System, uh, but it had to do with um, with. Um, uh, I'll say it with detective with child with a child detective that was the main character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, because they, the the children were playing with that. I mean, they, they had readings on that. So we designed, you know, our tasks uh, on the basis of of the, that idea, so that in a way it was not like the researchers, you know, coming into the classroom and doing mm-hmm. things that they were not familiar with. So. This takes a lot of uh, work, you know, because you have to get together with the teachers to design the type of tasks and before you actually gather the data, right? Now, after that project, I applied for a new one, of course, which is still, you know, uh, active. And this second one is uh, 2016, mid-21. We'll finish it in June, right? And this one was about um, collaborative work in the learning of EFL by primary uh, school learners, okay? Uh, The second one is, again, funded by the Spanish Ministry of Economy and Competitiveness, and it is comprised of four studies. And one of those studies is focused on uh, corrective feedback, but in writing, okay? So we used models and we use uh, reformulations, right? Uh, but not just pure writing, it's collaborative writing. So what we do is we, we video record the children, you know, interacting while they put together a text, right? which obviously then uh, is given to the teacher or the researcher and so we have all this information not just the oral information but the information about their written product and we analyze all that and we analyze the impact of their language related episodes on the on the on the written pieces and so we have now at least now three three phd dissertations on that topic that are on the way and uh so We are kind of uh, very happy with what we started, right? Because we actually started working with children back in the, in the mid 90s, but that, at that time it was about the age factor, okay? We have lots of research on the age issue as well, because in Spain we were lucky to find people who were first exposed to the language the way I was first po- exposed to French. <laughs> at the time it was uh, I was 11, right? So in my generation we were first exposed to a foreign language when we were 11, 12. Then the law changed and you had people exposed to the language when they were eight. And nowadays, they're ex- exposed to the language when they're four, right? So we got, you know, different cohorts. And the major issue was that they had been exposed to the language, the foreign language, just in a classroom context and for about the same amount of hours. So what, what is going on there? So we, that had to do with a different topic, totally different topic. That was the age issue. Right. Anyway, I don't, <laughs> that's all I have to say, I guess, um, <laughs> about that.
2: <laughs> no, it's interesting. Um, ever since, you know, reading your article and, you know, going and reading article sense, I've noticed that there are just so many, all the participants are, you know, university students or, and there is definitely a, this lack of like investigating mm-hmm. you know, children, yeah. EFL learners. Yeah, um, that's what
1: we are doing now. These days, yeah, that's what we are doing.
0: I was gonna just jump in just quickly if you don't mind, Jean. Pillar, do you is it? Do you follow the children as they age in 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 studies? So the same group of students when they're four, six, eight, ten, or is that not not allowed to be done?
1: Uh, we have never been allowed to do that, which obviously will be the you know oh that'll be awesome. Now what we <laughs> the um the thing is that um the. I have now a PhD student who is, um, um, actually, she'll be going to Canada for her uh, three-month stay in October, but um, what we have uh, managed to do in this uh, PhD dissertation is that she has uh, a first cycle of corrective feedback with models. sometimes some point in time let's say at the beginning of the academic year then she has three groups one that doesn't get the correct feedback one that gets models and one that gets models plus metalinguistic some metalinguistic lessons so to speak and then after two months the school allowed to allow her after many negotiations (laughs) as you can imagine to gather data from the very same children okay okay so that that'll be great it has never been done so that's the that's the novelty of the study at least in our foreign language context and foreign language context in general so she has quite a large database lots of data right um so she used uh, you know with the with a group she used models and with the other models and input enhancement right right uh cuz um i i mentioned that earlier uh there are two of our obsessions, you know, uh, have to do with uh, morphosyntactic issues. Like for example, the S of the third person singular, which most Spanish learners of English miss. And which is kind of, you know, you'll go like, huh? Is it that difficult? I mean, in Spanish you have three different ending, I mean, three, six different endings, one per person. In In nowadays English, you only have One for the present, and you miss it. I mean, um, and that's one of our um, hobby horses, I guess. And uh, the other is the he's her, okay? The possessive he's her. And um, both of those topics, I have uh, previous uh, former PhD dissertations on that. I mean, PhD students who have written their dissertations on that. So for example, the, the intuition we had for the he's her is that, well, intuition, and then obviously if you're a linguist, you check this with your children. Right? <laughs> uh, and so, I don't know. One day I was talking to my daughter, who is now 21, of course, no child anymore, but I'm no longer a child. But at that point, she, I was, we were speaking English and blah, blah, and she said, well, you know, because Sarah, um, well, uh, his brother, and I said, huh? His brother? There you have, you know, <laughs> corrective feedback. His brother? I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, well, why did you say that? And well, you you have to know that in Spain, everyone is really metalinguistic aware. If you're not by nature, they make you be, <laughs> they make you know because of the type of classes you have. You know, everyone knows what's a noun and adjective and you have all the jargon, right? Um which was something that was shocking to me when I taught Spanish in the U.S. <laughs> Speaking about direct object, um. people were like looking at me like, what? Um, anyway, but um, going back to, to this anecdote, I asked my daughter, why did you say his brother? You're talking about Sarah. And she said, well, mom, brother is masculine, Right. Oh, okay. So what they're doing is they're make establishing agreement, you know, with the noun with the with the with the gender of the noun in Spanish. So starting from that, you know, which is just an intuition, uh, these students of mine uh, uh, gathered data, but like with f- seven different uh, uh, tasks, right? Online, offline, uh, and obviously we had Basque Spanish learners of English and just. Spanish learners of English because Basque was playing a role as well there, right? But basically, I mean, after six hundred pages of a dissertation, the the answer was that exactly, right? I mean, it was like uh, it's they're establishing agreement with the gender of the of the Spanish now, right? Okay, so makes sense.
0: And when you use your own children, you don't need parental permission, right? (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, I never, I mean, mine mine were guinea pigs uh when they were very little. Then they didn't play the game anymore. And um yeah, but you know, sometimes you find out, I mean, at some point I have an article published on, let's say, the acquisition of uh deverbal nouns in English. And uh so one day my child, he was eight, right? And he was obviously they were learning Basque as well. Uh, neither my husband nor I uh, know Basque because we are not from here. Uh, so the guys, my, my son said, well, mom, you know something? English and Basque work in the same way. If you want to say firefighter. And I was like, huh? I was like, what is he saying? <laughs> and and then, you know, in his words, he explained to me, well, in, in, in Spanish, you know, or in In Basque and English, if you uh, want to say firefighter, you have fire, the noun, and then the verb, right? The same in Basque, right? In Spanish, the word for firefighter is bombero, right? But if you want to say apaga fuego, right, it's exactly the reverse order. It's the verb and then the object. So At some point, as I explained to my syntax students, at some point in his mind, right? He said, "Uh uh-oh, you know, here I have three languages playing up there and they are, you know, two of them are similar. And one is the odd one out, right? In this case, Spanish was the odd one out, right? So I thought, oh, how interesting. I'm gonna divide, <laughs> I'm gonna write a, I mean, so I collected data, you know, with high school students, I think it was high school students at that point. And I wanted to know, you know, and uh, because the, the, uh, the underlying hypothesis there would be that the Basque will help them it, when they were learning English, right? I mean, they're working the same. Well, no, 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 it was Spanish. Spanish was a stronger language, right? So these things—that's why research is so exciting because Very you cool. never know what's going to happen, right? Sometimes you find the opposite of what you were expecting.
0: Very true. Yeah. All right, Jean, sorry to interrupt. No,
1: no, no it's great. That's right. I, I'll go off off topic. <laughs> um,
2: so, in uh, actually, you mentioned Professor Pika, and there's a, a paper you did with mm-hmm. uh, Professor Pika, and you you identified that like peer-to-peer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in in an FL context interaction yielded similar uptake than, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of language learner to native speaker Mm -hmm. interactions. And Mm -hmm. I think that's so cool. Um, Mm -hmm. But in light of that, um, why do you believe that, you know, maybe I'm using foreign languages maybe too broadly, but Mm -hmm. um, in in a lot of foreign language Mm contexts, we see a lot of hiring of native speakers, mainly on the value Mm -hmm. of them being uh, native speakers. Um, mm-hmm.
1: so, so, yeah, so I guess,
2: why, why do you think that trend is still around?
1: <sighs> what, what can I tell you? I mean, this, I, I live this every day, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, you know, when my uh, – <laughs> this, again, I've given you lots of anecdotes, but I think they, they kind of give you a feeling of what society in general thinks, you know, here and in other countries as well. So when my, my son played football for many years, well, soccer over there, I guess, um, and, you know, you had to share lots of hours, you know, on the weekend with other parents. And uh, so one of them once told me, well, when your children go up, grow up, you'll send them to, to learn English overseas, right? And I said, well, I don't know, perhaps to be like a month with a family or something. Well, you'll send them to the UK, right? And I said... Well, no, I'll send them to the USA, right, or to Canada. Oh, my God. But there, they don't speak English well. The only... Good English is the one in the UK. And I said, Well, I, th- I thought to myself, What a wonderful, well, no, what I thought to myself was, Am I going to tell her about social linguistics here? And about, you know, well, so most people in Spain, I would say, they believe that if a native speaker teaches the language class, their kids will learn English basically better and automatically, you know. This is what the literature has referred to as the native speaker myth. Hmm? By the way, uh, if you have time, you can Google David Crystal. He has a very interesting talk in November 2020. And uh, he says, you know, well, yeah, people think that everything should be modeled uh, as native speaker accent, native speaker grammar. That's out of the window for me, he says, right? received pronunciation spoken only by two percent of people in england in england not only not scotland or wales yeah and so he says you need to introduce students to all kinds of accents otherwise they will be living in a false paradise i think that's just great you know um So my idea, and of course, this is my personal opinion, right? I think that having a well-trained non-native speaker that can provide frequent and high quality input has actually many more advantages than having a native speaker that does not have a command of the native language. Most of the times that's the case, okay? The native speaker comes here, he or she is hired at a language academy, they don't even speak Spanish, right? Okay, that could have a good... I mean, that could have the advantage that you force the learners to use whatever English they have, right? Because this person doesn't know in Spanish or pretends he doesn't know in Spanish. But I mean, no native speaker has the knowledge of the learner cell one, right? And because it's normally his or hers, right? So you're able to anticipate the problems that your students have because you have been there before, Right? and and so you can actually you know you can play quote unquote with the two languages and you can make learners aware of the differences the similarities between the two systems in such a way that you can facilitate the learning right also i think you can be kind of a a model for your for your students you know they can think oh she has done it i can done it i can do it too right uh so you know, for me, uh, the native—I think there are very interesting books actually about the native speaker myth. Of course, I have nothing against a native speaker uh, for conversation classes, uh, or even if he, you know, sometimes if they do have the training as far as you know linguistic tools that they can use, but that's not normally the case. By the way, from from uh, information I have. For, from a former PhD student of mine who uh, speaks Chinese, um, I've been told that that's what happens nowadays in Spain with the learning of Chinese, right? Because the Chinese government sometimes sends here very young people who just speak Chinese, but they don't have the methodological tools to teach Chinese to people who are not used to the Chinese culture. which is totally different from this one, right? So actually, his dissertation was about that. He had, I'm really (laughs) doing publicity here of my PhD students, but he has just uh, defended his dissertation in November, right? And this guy is, um, he's an engineer, but he just loved Chinese, right? So he learned, was self-taught, and then he went to China. He got his MA there, MA on teaching Chinese as a foreign language. And so his dissertation was about comparing traditional Chinese teaching to Chinese teaching by means of drama-based classes, right? It was great, you know, so people here did much better in their oral production as far as accent, intelligibility, fluency, much better with the drama-based versus the traditional Chinese classes, which is for them were just boring, you know? So, but that's what the native speakers of Chinese that come here do, right? So there you have an example of, you know, having a native speaker doesn't mean anything I mean, of course, it's good for some things, but not, it's not a panacea, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Is there anything being currently done to combat this native speaker myth in Spain? Mm. Or is it changing? Do you notice that there has been a change towards like, especially now, um, I think with social mm. justice, there has been mm. a lot of conversations. We actually even yeah. recently, yeah. we had a conversation with a scholar, Suleiman Jenkins, uh-huh. who is an American who lives in Dubai and who actually uh-huh. um, encountered a lot of uh, a lot of um, discrimination for not looking like a native speaker even uh-huh. though he is an, a native uh-huh. speaker of the language very
1: interesting huh? is uh, there no, anything no. happening I, I, as far as I can tell I don't have I mean like data or but my feeling is that nothing is changing in that sense nothing is changing I mean it's like the native speaker is actually considered like the authority right So I don't know, I guess we will have to do something, right? I I mean, there are books, but again, back to the same story. I mean, who reads the books (laughs) and who reads the articles and who, I mean, uh, if you relate all this to what we are trying to do here at the level of the Basque Country um, is, you know, you have to make teachers aware Mm -hmm. of How important creative feedback is. I mean, normally, and again, I always say this, you know, in teacher workshops and everything, I never blame teachers because at least in Spain, they are... Up to here with administrative work, they don't have time to read research articles or to interpret research articles. So it's our job as researchers to, you know, organize uh, workshops and uh, and organize um, you know forum in which fora in which we can share our findings, leaving aside all the jargon and just conveying the main ideas of what we do, right? And how how you know beneficial they can be for their everyday uh, you know work yeah
2: and i think it kind of harkens back to you know kind of what we're doing here with you know like posting these interviews but even Mm -hmm. like you know having that corrective feedback bible (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um which actually kind of leads to the next question of teacher training Mm -hmm. about corrective feedback Mm um you know in in your paper you you kind of advocate that we need more Mm
1: -hmm. yeah Um, yeah
2: and what does that look like for you
1: um, okay. Uh, I think you said that at the beginning, you know, well, I'm also, mm-hmm. I've been uh, the coordinator of the of the mm-hmm. MA program, Language Acquisition and Multilingual Settings, since its inception, right? Since 2009. We have uh, uh, people from all over the world actually here, which is kind of amazing because we're based in Vitoria. It's not Madrid or Barcelona, right? It's Vitoria. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have people from everywhere in the world, right? So um, I have the chance to teach uh, well and to deal with uh, to both uh, students who have just graduated right and also with um, with uh, teachers practicing teachers some of them who I mean they take like one year off to you not know, to do the master's degree and some have uh, lots of years of, of, of experience right and I have to admit that I at first I was really shocked hmm, at how little these uh, this, this teachers with uh, with experience, huh? how little they knew about basic constructs of uh, second language acquisition, right? Um, I remember once talking about, uh, you know, like the unit on, you know, well, input and blah, blah, and, and, and crashes, uh, uh, affective filter and all this stuff. And so, they were like looking at me like, uh-huh, that's why, you know, as if they were thinking, oh, that's why this I' So, I realized, well, really, you know, these people didn't, have not had the chance to read, you know, different stories that have been there in the second language acquisition field for many years now, right? So, um, I've always defended that teacher training for future language teachers should be a must, right? In their size, it's not just the training in an MA program, but you know, throughout their, their their career, they they should be allowed to take seminars and to you know update information and all that. Um, there is a very, very interesting study that I sometimes use in my classrooms, in my classes, sorry, uh, by Alison Mackey and other colleagues. It dates back to 2004 and it's about corrective feedback. And I thought it was very interesting and actually easy to implement because they are comparing like novel teachers with more experienced teachers and it's about corrective feedback, right? And they give them a script with the very same lesson. They give them 24 hours to prepare for that lesson right and then obviously they record how each of the teachers uh, behave and you see the very same uh you know corrective feedback episodes and how the experienced teachers deal with it and how the novel teachers uh the more or less experienced teachers deal with it and it's just amazing you know and actually i just remember now that the more experienced teachers they use you know a, a wider range of tools right for corrective feedback so visual uh, oral, I mean again, rising intonation, even gestures. you can use you know gestures or something like that to call your learners' attention, right? Now uh, Dr. Millen and myself had just published a study, another chapter, eh? um, because in her dissertation, she also gathered data on, um, on teachers' beliefs about corrective feedback and students' beliefs, right? So what we observed was that clear teachers' beliefs and practices did not really match. Their lessons were not balanced in terms of content and language, and um, teachers' reflections of their own practices and beliefs, as well as the convergence between beliefs and practices, are hypothesized to help to help learners um language teaching right so i think they have to go into back to your question they have teachers have to be made aware of their own practices and be provided with further training on the importance of uh, oral corrective feedback also written corrective feedback for example uh, teacher training courses for CLIL teachers could include actual video footage of what they do right uh in in their classes right of course this again you know leads us to okay permissions blah blah and uh, parents permission because it the 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 learners will be recorded as well um but i going back to my own experience as a teacher my my um my studies here in spain were um what were in the old times, they were called English philology. These years, now nowadays, they're called English studies, right? So we had all kinds of uh, literature, English language, one, two, three, four, the Nth uh, English language. And then Old English, Middle English. My professors in the US were just, you know, what? Uh, you know, whole nine month courses on Old English translation of Beowulf. I mean, everything. Right. And so I knew a lot about the history of the English language. I was really, you know, <laughs> a philologist. All right. But anyway, I had never taught. I had never been in front of an audience. Right. Teaching in front of a class. Because in my times, you basically you either taught or worked. I mean, so do either would you were a student or 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 you worked, right? So it was like it was no combination of both uh, both things. Anyway, so the first time I was in front of a classroom was in the Spanish department because I was. Um, you know, I, I went to the States with a Fulbright scholarship, but then I said, "Well, I need to teach, right? I wanna, I wanna be, well, feel the danger, right?" Anyway, so um, they really liked me in the Spanish department because I was not just a native speaker of the language, but I also had the training, you know, the linguistic training and all that. Well, the first time I was in front, <laughs> was in front of my students it was like 25. I didn't see 25 people. I just saw 50 eyes, you know, looking at me. But I was very nervous and said, like, "How could this be? This is my language." You know, anyway. But going back to the teacher training thing, that was the first time, and I thought that was great, you know? So in just one semester, it was not semester six months, it was like four months period, right? Fall semester, for example. Um, You had uh, two, uh, was it? Yeah, two unannounced visits by your supervisor, right? And we should be like sitting back there, taking notes, right? You had no idea what she was writing about. And then one more that one was announced, someone from the video section of the university, uh, he would come and record, right, a video record your, 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 your class, right? That's the only way, right, you can learn of what, what, you, about what you actually do in the classroom. Like in my case, speaking Spanish, I'll be saying like a thousand times, ¿entendido? ¿De verdad que lo entendido? I mean are you sure you have understood it I was like gosh and I was not I was not even you know aware of that until I saw myself and the video you know' was like gosh te estás pasando I mean you're overdoing it right you're overdoing it just stop it you know but I was really you know I really wanted to make sure that they got the point right so uh, also teachers could be shown how to draw your their learners' attention to formal aspects of the language by means of again implicit oral corrective feedback moves, um, CLIL and NEFL teachers should try to assess what their learners' beliefs about oral corrective feedback are. Right, they should try to make them aware of the benefits of you know this pedagogical tool. Even explain what the major types the teacher could use are, and perhaps ask their questions about uh, ask them questions about their favorite types. Who knows? Um, so. Because that will link to the learner's motivation as well, you know. Well, I like this one better, you know. So, you 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 you, you do it like with that student. You'll use this type of feedback. Um, so, I think that attention to to, to language form in, in in content lessons, which is what is actually missing, has been found to be essential for adequate language development, right? And uh, um, learners should also be made aware of. Uh, as I was saying, of the important benefits of corrective feedback, right? And again, um, um, Alison Mackey with other colleagues, she has been pioneering so many things. They employed, this was a much more recent study in 2016. There's a book on on peer interaction, right? And they employed a four-part metacognitive instruction session, right? with a group of low intermediate EFL learners, so they were not advanced, they were just low intermediate EFL learners in Japan about the importance of corrective feedback to show them ways uh, to provide feedback and interaction with peers, right? And they presented the benefits of meaning-based instruction and of interactions, provided learners with useful conversational moves and they could, so that they could use Negotiation of meaning strategies. I did that too with one of my PhD students, but for for her MA thesis. And so we had two groups. In one group, uh, they could see a video in which they could see people negotiating, right? And the other group didn't see that video. And so then they had their their task, right? And there was a clear difference, right? Between the ones, I mean, you have to show people how to do things. Mm-hmm. You have to give them the tools to do that, right? Anyway, so of course, I I think that training is is crucial, but not just training teachers, but also making both teachers and learners aware of these things, right?
2: Cool. Thank you so much. Um, That is all of our questions. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So thank you for meeting with us. Or I'm missing a question. Thank you very
1: much. I've probably talked a lot but I really want to yeah. thank you I want to thank Eva I want to thank you all for 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 bearing with me for inviting me and it has really been a pleasure to to share my thoughts here bailey mainly based on you know what we have done here throughout the years and uh, again, if you're interested in what we do, you can always find uh, you know information in my webpage and most publications I mean the list of the publications is there. and anyone listening to this podcast can contact me uh, and uh, and I'll be happy very happy to share our research. I know you know it's really very difficult to summarize all the details in a podcast, but uh, um, I'm very happy that I've been allowed to do so. Oh, they can send Where an email. Can people I mean, they can you, uh, see my webpage, which is uh, www.laslab.org-pilar. Right? That's my webpage. If you Google my name, that'll be probably the first thing that will pop up, and they can send me, and me an email message. Uh, just my 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 name, all in small uh, letters, Maria Mayo at e H-U dot E-U-S.
3: <laughs> I was just going to say, you just made all of that research accessible to a lot of people who will never have time to actually yeah. read that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, That's how we we'll, go
3: Yeah, and we're definitely going to have you back on the podcast to talk about different things this time.
1: <laughs> I'll be happy to do so. We have worked a lot throughout. I've been here for almost 28 years. Wow! And when I arrived here, there was... Nothing, literally nothing about uh, second language acquisition. And, and now, as you can see in my webpage, you know we have a pretty big group. Lots of PhD students again for for Victoria standards and actually for many places in Spain standards and uh, and we have uh, we have been uh, considered or labeled an excellence research group by the Bas government I mean which is actually our major funding uh, agency right we are all oh, by the way we organize international seminars every year last year we had to. Uh, cancel our seminar because of the COVID thing. But that seminar that was going to be face-to-face is going to be virtual now. We will or, you will find information on our webpage on it. It will take place on May 28th and it's gonna be about children and form form focused tasks. And we will have the pleasure to have Laura Gursinski-Ways from Indiana, Masatoshi Sato, um, uh, Yuko Butler, Natsuko Shintani, and, um, I forgot her first name, Kasprobit, the young uh, researcher in the UK. Yes. So it's going to be online and, uh, you know, it's going to be basically for free. Lots of people can register. Um, so, yeah. And again, we have uh, we have international seminars, at least one every year. Most, uh, well, most VIPs from Second Language Acquisition have been here. Even, uh, either as, you know, in those uh, workshops or in our master's program teaching modules now in uh, in May we will have uh, Victoria Vicky Murphy from Oxford and uh, every year we have lots of people coming in yeah visiting us
0: wow busy time it sounds great well we'll link all of that in the show notes and on on the blog for the episode and hopefully people can join
1: (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. yeah please yeah okay thanks a lot thank you so much bye-bye
0: You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.